Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Jason Solomons. I write every week in The New European on the best in film from Europe, Hollywood and beyond. If you'd like to enjoy more from The New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Hello Snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast. It's a British eye on European politics and culture from the people who bring you the New European newspaper. People like me, Steve Anglesey. How are you? In a moment, I'm going to be joined by the author and journalist Safras Manzor, whose new book, They, What Muslims and Non-Muslims Get Wrong About One Another, is out now. He's written about it in the current issue of The New European. And then, as is our custom, we'll be putting more putrid politicians and pompous pundits into the Hall of Shame. The New European has got an excellent new website. Why not check it out at theneweuropean.co.uk and you can enjoy more from The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And we have an excellent new podcast you can listen to after this one too. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives is great. It tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. So coming up, Safraz Manzor. But first, it'll probably have caught your eye that the pub chain Weatherspoons, run by the Brexiteer Tim Martin, is running out of some beers as a result of the HGV supply line crisis that's been partly caused by Brexit. It's strange because I don't remember we'll be able to sell you less beer, being one of the promises on those beer mats listing the benefits of Brexit that Tim had printed up around the time of the referendum. And with Tim's ban on EU beers, how has a nice pint of ice-cold Schadenfreude crept onto the menu? Look, there are more serious things to worry about than shortages of Carling, Coors and Bud Light at Weatherspoons. This week, my mum, who's been suffering from unexpectedly high blood pressure, was told she couldn't have a blood test because her GP was running out of blood tubes. The scramble for drivers in this HGV crisis is seeing recruitment bonuses and higher wages, up to 40% higher. That's great for the drivers, isn't it? But inevitably, those bonuses and pay rises will be paid for by price rises, which are going to disproportionately affect the poorest people in our society. Our food and drink producers are on their knees. Trade to the EU in the first six months of 2021 is down 27% on the same period in 2019. That's a loss of £2 billion. And as I've said here before and written about in the New European, the customs changes on October the 1st and January the 1st are going to bring new levels of chaos. Now, I know a lot of you will disagree with this, but I don't think what's happening to Weatherspoons is funny. I think it's sad. I think it could have been avoided. I think it still could be ameliorated. 
But that would require a bit of honesty. It would require people like Tim Martin and Boris Johnson to stand up and say, some of what I thought was right was wrong, and here's how we're going to fix it. And Tim Martin is already some way down that line. He's calling for ways to make it easier for EU workers to migrate here, to work in his pubs. And he's calling for ways to make it easier for EU drivers to come back here and deliver his beer. All he needs to do is work out what the EU gets in return. It's not a one-way street. And we had an agreement that did all that. But until they do stand up and say, some of what I thought was right was wrong, and here's how we're going to fix it, until the idea that they need us more than we need them is buried once and for all, then the taps are going to run dry. The chickens will be staying home to roost rather than going off to Nando's. The milkshakes are going to remain unthrown at Nigel Farage. It just needs some Brexiteers to have the balls to own up. We asked listeners of this podcast what they thought of the Weatherspoons crisis. Lifelong landlady said, if it was just spoons, I'd be laughing at Tim, but it's many pubs. The tenanted pubs are suffering far more. Daniel Reed said, I would love to be a fly on the wall of the next Weatherspoon shareholders meeting. Liz Anderson said, Tim Martin was warned and he didn't listen. It's staggering when someone is, runs a business that is based on free movement of people and goods and yet doesn't even understand his own business model. Josh Steinman says, Weatherspoons buy tail end or overproduction beer at cut prices. Brewers are going to be managing their production tighter, so with fewer drivers, brewers will be prioritising their full fare-paying customers. Andrew Hall says, I use the Neverspoons app instead, and I support other pubs nearby. And Fluff, I think he sums it up quite well. He says, Tim Martin deserves what's coming, but it's a shame for his underpaid staff. Now, the author and journalist Safraz Manzoor. His many credits include The Guardian, The Times and The Sunday Times, and now I'm delighted to say The New European. His first book, Greetings from Berry Park, was filmed as Blinded by the Light. It described a childhood growing up Pakistani and Muslim in 1980s Luton while completely obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. But they, what Muslims and non-Muslims get wrong about each other, is a different kind of journey through a post-Brexit Britain where there is fear and suspicion, but also a bit of hope. Welcome to the podcast. It's a terrific piece, and from what I've gone through so far, terrific book. There's a great piece of journalism, some superb, really revealing interviews in there. Um, Paul Mason was here last week, and he was talking about the moments of concern and despair that led him to write his new book, which is How to Stop Fascism. Were there similar moments of concern and despair that, that led directly to you writing They?, yeah, there were sort of, to be honest, I can sort of bring it back down to 2016, where you might remember something happened right about June. Yeah, I've um, been trying to block it out, but <laughs> um, a well, podcast it, about it. I know, you got a newspaper about it. But um, yeah, no, and to be honest, it was a combination of things. But 2016, you had Manchester Arena, then you had London Bridge, you had Westminster Bridge. So you had all these attacks going on in the name of Islam. You then had Joe Cox's murder. You then had, obviously, Brexit. Later that year, Donald Trump gets elected. You then also had the simmering stuff going on about uh, Rotherham and Rochdale and Telford and Oxford and all these child grooming stories. And then the following year, you've got this guy, Darren Osborne, who tries to drive a van into a, into a mosque in Finsbury Park, near where I live. And then all of that, you then also got the Tommy Robinson Brigade sort of, you know, mm. joining the joining in and sort of causing trouble. And I just got, I have to be honest, I got really down about all of this stuff because this was, it, it made me feel like this wasn't 
the country that I thought it was. And I've always generally believed that most people are tolerant, most people are decent, Twitter isn't the real world. But when you start seeing so many demonstrations of things that suggest tensions between Muslims and non-Muslims, and then I remember seeing this Channel 4 News report, which I mentioned in, in yes. the piece for the New European, and it was this guy, and he basically says, look, you know, this vote, Brexit vote, it's not about immigration, it's not about trade or Europe, it's about it's about immigration. It's about Muslims coming into this country. Simple as that. And I thought maybe this guy has, you know, maybe we should be applauding him because maybe he's actually telling us the truth rather than what everybody else is claiming it's about. Mm. So, I, yeah, I did get really down. And then I just started thinking, well, what can I do? You know, based on what I've got to offer the world, what can I do? I'm not a politician. I'm not, you know, I don't I don't have a column. I don't have, you know, I'm not, I don't have, I don't run any kind of institution. All I've got is the ability to try and tell some stories, a bit of journalistic, um, you know, abilities. So I thought I would try and do my bit to try and make things better. And that's partly why I wrote this book, to try and understand the sources of the division, but then also to see whether there might be a road to a better place. And it's, I mean, I mean, it, I think it is a much needed, thing and it and it hopefully you know it's breaking a, a silence that's led to all these years of fear and, and suspicion is it i mean is it a book that is to be read by muslims and non-muslims as as it, it says in the uh, in the subtitle is it, who's the ideal reader of this book do you think and what do you want to them to leave it with well i mean to be honest when I was starting to think about it, I was thinking, imagine I was sitting opposite someone who was, you know, a little bit Islamophobic, basically mm. somebody who it does have to be, they don't have to be a stone cold bigot, but they, they had basically read the stuff in the right wing press. They had, you know, they had followed certain people on Twitter and they'd got themselves into this narrative that Islam was a religion, which was essentially backward, which was essentially misogynistic, that was essentially violent in its in, in what it preached, that it had issues about homosexuality, that it had issues about anti-Semitism. I wanted to basically ask this person, what are your concerns about the religion? And I literally did a brainstorm of all these things that I've just listed. And then I just thought, okay, well, why don't I just interrogate this, not in a total defense of Islam, as in none of this is true, but using my journalistic uh, ideas and saying, let's see, why do people think this? How true is it? And if it is true, who are the people who are making it a better place and a more progressive place? But the thing was, I kind of didn't want to do something which was just going to be a, a brainless defense of everything, as if everything is all hunky-dory and all of this is just the media tittle-tattle, you know? So my thought was, and when you answer to answer your question, my thought was, no matter who you are, you know, whatever paper you read, whoever you voted for, there will be things in this which will make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. You know, mm. there'll be some things that will confirm what you think, and there'll be certain things that will make you uncomfortable, you know? So actually, the idea is that whoever reads it, they'll find something that will surprise them, that will hopefully inform them, but will also provoke them into thinking a little bit harder than about what they thought they knew. And the, you know, the chat. I mean, I knew I was going to enjoy this when I opened up the contents page and saw exactly as you've described how you how you've organised this. And the, the chapter headings are, I, I, I guess, beliefs about what some British non-Muslims think about British Muslims. I just want to. I hope you can talk about a, a, a couple of those and get your take on what you found and, and what you think. One of the chapter headings is 
they don't want to live among us. And you make a really interesting point about, you know, what we perceive as segregated communities in Blackburn and Luton, Bradford. Um, and some of those have been segregated, by the way, because white people moved out, didn't they? As Muslims Absolutely, yeah. Moved in. And then you, you you bring up your own community in, in North London. What's, what's all that about? What's your thinking there? Well, you know, what it is, is that it's what happens, I find, is that when you start living a certain life, you start justifying that life and thinking that basically that's the only way to be. And you can start thinking that somehow, you know, you can always make yourself the hero of your own story, you know, mm-hmm. and that's true about your own political views or whatever, you know. And I thought, well, I want to try and when I'm writing this book, I want to be as hard on myself and my own preconceptions and my own prejudices as I'm going to try and be on everybody else's. So I grew up in a fairly, in quotes, segregated community in Luton, very Pakistani, hardly anybody white ever came through our doors. You know, my, my parents told us that white people were like a different kind of sort of people and we shouldn't really be mixing with them. So it was all sort of, as you might kind of, you know, pretty much textbook segregation. I mm. now live in North London and the usual story would be to say, well, I've left segregation for a rich, multicultural, diverse, truly integrated life. But then you sort of drill down and you think, well, how integrated is it? Like, do I literally know anybody who voted to leave? Not really. Do I know anybody who isn't double jabbed? Double jabbed? Um, I know a couple of people and I'm starting to try and withdraw my social my social interaction with them. Do I know anybody who doesn't listen to Radio 4 and 6 Music? Not that really. They all basically own the same cookbooks by Otto Lenghi and Anna Jones. We all discuss the White Lotus and the same Netflix shows. And it's almost like, you know, it's actually a bubble of self-perpetuating ideas and anybody, I sort of, I, I, as I say in the, in, the, in the piece, you know, I've never heard anybody when we've had some friends around for dinner back in the days when we could have friends for, for dinner so easily. I've never heard anyone say, you know, it'd be really nice to have a proper, proper Tory around this table just for the sake of diversity. You know, it's like, and so in a way, let's be hard on oneself. Actually, that is also segregation. That's also a self-reinforced bubble. But this is one which is on the whole white, well-educated, well-to-do. And it isn't one that really anyone points the finger at in the way that they might do about other segregated bubbles. Um, let's, let, let me just quickly go through some of the other ones. I mean, they are... I mean, these these are these are hard things to believe and and hard things to say. But they follow a violent religion. They follow a religion that hates Jews. They believe homosexuality is a sin. Um, I'm not and, pulling any punches here, am I? No, of course not. <laughs> well, I just thought that my point, I suppose, was let's. I don't want anyone to say, "Oh, you know what? He's written something and he hasn't tackled the elephant in the room." Mm. You know, so some of those chapters are really hard to write. The one about, you know, child sexual exploitation was an incredibly difficult one to write. But my point was, I want this book. It's not going to be definitive, but I want this book to not be. Nobody could accuse this book of not tackling the hard questions to do with multiculturalism and British Muslims, because it tackles every single one of them. And, you know, at the end of it, whether we you know, I think you'll hopefully feel with each one of those things that the things that we're told about the religion aren't quite the full story. And there is, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of 
hope in the uh, in, in the book as well, which we will uh, which will come to in a minute, and in your piece for the for the New European, which is which is uh, equally wonderful. There's a quote from Sajid Javid on the back of your book, and it's a great quote: um, "Hope is ever present in what is simply a must read." And then, of course, you mention in, in the book and in the piece that, you know, when you were growing up in Luton, it was probably unthinkable that you would have people like Sajid Javid in a position of power, Sadiq Khan, and you mentioned people like Michelle Hussein and Riz Ahmed um, achieving the kind of status that it, it didn't seem possible for Muslims when, when you were a child. But you also talk about Boris Johnson and his awful letterbox column. What, what, what were people that you spoke to, that Muslims that you spoke to in the writing of this book, what do they think of this government? And is, is Javid diminished in some way by being part of it, do you think? Um, well, I'll be honest, I didn't ask people what they thought of the government because I wanted to write a book which wasn't as sort of linked to the present moment in that yeah. way. So I, it, wasn't, it wasn't kind of like trying to do that. The, 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 there's two things I was going to say. One is that I think that you know, it, when one focuses on the things that are not right about a country or a society, which is right to do, you can sometimes blind yourself to the things that are right or the things that are working. And so, like I say, as I say in the piece, the idea that we would have as many people in positions of power and in just in just in visibility who are from a British Muslim background, as we do, and also British Asian has broadened it out, yes. would have been absolutely un thinkable and yet what i find interesting is that hardly anybody really mentions it. and if they do they don't sort of say necessarily in a particularly you know, nobody seems to be saying about the chancellor that he hasn't got a chance of replacing uh, boris johnson because he's british asian mm. you know like that doesn't seem to be a question that doesn't seem to be a, a, a black mark against him you know and i find that really really hopeful but the fact that we don't even discuss it is kind of interesting now with sajid javid it's really interesting because Virtually nobody who is British Muslim seems to give him any respect or credibility whatsoever amongst the people I talk to, you know. Um, they mostly think he's a coconut, you know, as in brown on the outside and white on the inside. A lot of people say, you know, he's, he sort of uses his ethnicity and his identity when it serves him. But on the whole, he's completely burnt his bridges, etc. Personally, I have to say, I think, that, I mean, I talked to him for the book, but I think that's unfair. And I think that tells us about how certain people, if they follow certain views, are deemed acceptably Muslim and others aren't. You know, I happen to not agree with, you know, I think anybody who had a picture of Margaret Thatcher as a 16 year old, as he did, is obviously not somebody who I can think of as a, as a, as a truly heroic figure. But at the same time, it's a heck of a journey to have gone from what he has done, from where he started to where he's got to. And the fact that so many people basically kind of discount the fact that he's Muslim because he's a conservative, I think I, I personally think that is a little bit problematic, you know. Um, so, so yeah, so I think he doesn't get the respect he deserves. And uh, I think the fact that I quoted him on, on the back won't necessarily win me, uh, win me too many new Muslim readers. But I thought it was interesting that both Sajid Javid and Alan Johnson, who are both former Home Secretaries and probably don't agree on too much, are both quoted at the back of the book. Yes, there you go. I'm not sure Alan Johnson had a picture of Margaret Thatcher, or if he did, uh, I'm not sure. He probably I think done. he had a picture of the Beatles, probably. <laughs> probably very, very, very probably. Um, let, let's end up. Uh, let's end by talking about hope, um, be, because the, the piece and your book is, is so full of it, and it's full of these inspiring stories. You know, I was reading about Hannah and uh, Shazia uh, last night. It's absolutely uh, brilliant, and, and you say. It, it was fascinating just how often in my book change is the result of individual actions. Can you talk a bit more
more about that and, and the people that you met that are that are doing that and and what we need to do to start moving towards each other across this big divide yeah because i mean i i wanted the book to feel hopeful because i think that too easy too easily we can write a book which basically says we're all going to hell in a handbasket and you know there's nothing we can do about it and i wanted it to feel a little bit more instructive and a little bit more inspiring and so i did seek out the stories of hope that would hopefully counter the more grim things and what was interesting about most of those stories was that there was often in the stories of these people a decision they they came to a crossroads and they took a particular decision, you know, and then that decision changed their life or changed the life of somebody else. And then that also changes the narrative more broadly. So, for example, there's a story about a, a synagogue in Bradford and the synagogue is in a very Asian area and the roof is damaged. And it looks like the synagogue, which is one of the oldest buildings in, in Bradford, is, is under threat. And the guy who runs the synagogue is in his late 80s. He visits the local Muslim community and approaches one of the one of the people in the community and says, you know, tells them about the problem. And this Muslim guy says, how much does it cost to, to fix? And the guy tells him and he's like, maybe I can help. And he consults, the, he consults his imam at the mosque and say, is it OK to help this guy who works at the, at the synagogue to help to build the synagogue? And the imam says, absolutely. Islam and Judaism have a huge shared history and they have a huge amount of respect for each other. He gets the thumbs up. So this Muslim man ends up funding the, salve, the saving and the rebuilding of the synagogue. Terrific. And that then helps foster really good, close relationships between Muslims and Jews in Bradford. Now, that was a crossroads moment. That man made a decision to, to, to go for hope. You know, Similarly, there'll be a story about a Muslim woman actually up in Yorkshire whose son is gay. And he, you know, she basically could have at some point sort of told him that he was, he was ostracized from the family. But she makes a decision that she's going to embrace and accept him. And so when I met them, I met them together. So this, this Muslim man, a very traditional Muslim woman, I did the entire interview in Urdu, and she made a decision that she was not going to let the fact that that is not what she necessarily would have wanted from her son get in the way. And when I said to her, you know, what do you think about people who say that this religion is, you know, is not, uh, is, is anti, is, is homophobic or something? She said, tell me who these people are and why they think they are bigger than Allah. You know, who can, the only person who could judge me is Allah, not anyone else in this community. And so she made a decision that she was going to love and defend her son. And then I finally think about my own mum, who, when I got uh, together with somebody who was white and, and not a Muslim, you know, she was, she told me that my, this woman could go to Hajj in Mecca seven years in a row and she would never be accepted into our family. And yet when it came to it, when it came to the wedding day, my mum did turn up to my wedding. So each of these people made a decision and that decision helped reach to a better place. And so what I ended up concluding was that politics and policies are important. But if we really want a journey towards a more hopeful and united society, it's also on each of us and what decisions we make as people, because hope lives and dies in the hands of individuals and the choices that we all make. Brilliant. That's I would I would vote I would vote for that as a stump speech. That was that was a, that was a terrific uh, a terrific way to end. I must just ask you before you go, what's the how how's the state of your your Springsteen love at the moment? Undiminished? Well, I tell you what, I was actually going to this is the last week that Springsteen is playing at Broadway. Yes. And I was going I was actually thinking of flying out to New York to catch the final show. And if it wasn't for the fact that it's actually illegal, as far as I can tell, to fly to New York because of uh, I don't think you're, I don't think you're allowed to fly in if you're from Britain into New York. 
I would actually be in New York this week. So that's where my state of my love is. Well, there you go. And you can, I mean, it's a, 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 that's a terrific book in itself. But, uh, but they, what Muslims and non-Muslims get wrong about each other, uh, is equally terrific. Thank you so much for joining us, Safras Manzo. It's been a real treat to read uh, his piece. Please uh, join the New European by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And finally, it's the Hall of Shame, our home for bad politicians, Brexiteers, hoist by their own petard. There's been a few of those lately, isn't there? Things that annoy me generally. Uh, the Foreign Office are in the Hall of Shame, and this time it's nothing to do with Dominic Raab. Here's what happened when somebody in a journalism forum that I'm part of asked the Foreign Office a question this week. The Foreign Office press officer said, we're not commenting on that. And then she said, the journalist said, OK, I'll put that the Foreign Office is refusing to comment. And the Foreign Office said, that would be completely inaccurate. We're not refusing to comment. And the journalist said, so you are going to comment? And the Foreign Office said, no, no comment. But you can't say we're refusing to comment. And there are people who think, yes, Minister, in the thick of it were fiction. Sainsbury's are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I want to read you something from my colleague Tim Martin's Mandrake gossip column in this week's issue of The New European. Maybe you can go into your own Sainsbury's and try this. He says, Sainsbury's has long had associations with the Tories. It's life president, Lord Sainsbury, sits on the party's benches in the Lords. Uh, politics has not often reared its head on the aisles until now. Uh, he says, a journalist of Tim's acquaintance was visiting Sainsbury's in North London last week and inquired of an employee if the empty shelves he was seeing were down to COVID or Brexit. COVID, the man replied unhesitatingly. My friend explained, that's why, why he seemed so sure. The member of staff explained that it was what he'd been told to say to customers who asked the question. Tim contacted Sainsbury's press office to inquire if staff had been given a script in relation to this touchy subject. Uh, and their press officer, Sarah Head, answered, our colleagues and suppliers are working hard to make sure customers can find everything they need when they shop, when they shop with us. Availability in some product categories may vary, but alternatives are available and stores continue to receive De deliveries daily. We've made our colleagues aware of this and they are trained to help customers find a suitable alternative if a specific product is unavailable. Not really answering Tim's question. Tim asked again if there was a script that Sainsbury staff were expected to keep to about COVID rather than Brexit and the Sainsbury's PR office did not reply. Interesting. Now, Alak, Igad, Harumf, it's on Widdicombe Corner, the magical time of the podcast, when I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express. And uh, so maybe Anne should get a job at Sainsbury's. Anne writes, apparently up to 40,000 HGV tests have been cancelled, largely due to COVID restrictions, which has been a major contributory factor to the shortage of delivery drivers and consequent empty shelves. Industrial action and poor wages haven't helped. Uh, but if the drivers cannot get on the road due to an absence of qualifying tests, the situation will not be resolved. So let's look at Anne's causes for the uh, shortage of food. Again, uh, 40,000 HGV tests cancelled, industrial action, poor wages. I, I can't help thinking there's another major contributory factor to the shortage of delivery drivers and consequent empty shelves that Anne isn't mentioning, but maybe it'll come to her in, in time. But foremost or foreleast in the Hall of Shame this week is the Mail on Sunday. 
And since Paul Dacre's old deputy, Ted Verity, took over as editor, the Mail on Sunday has been one of the more, more rabidly pro-Brexit papers in, you know, the, uh, flouting all the evidence. Here are some of the headlines on the leader column, the Mail on Sunday says, from earlier this year. The lumbering EU monster has shown its true colours. A better vindication of Brexit cannot be found. From doom to gloom, proof that Brexit is boosting Britain. The EU's seething resentment of Britain's success hurts them more than it does us. And I, I could go on. There are numerous pro-Brexit uh, pieces in the Mail on Sunday every week. So really interesting to see their leader column last Sunday, which accompanied a piece by the Marks and Spencer boss, Archie Norman, where he told Mail on Sunday readers about stuff they don't really read about in the Mail on Sunday, the horrendous nature of the red tape caused by Brexit. And the Mail on Sunday responded with a comment piece of Mail on Sunday says piece, a leader column, that said, let's unite with the EU to crush the curse of border bureaucracy. What are they proposing? Some sort of union with the with Europe to have free trade and make it easier to have movement of people and, and goods? What an amazing idea. What, what could we call this union with Europe? Any, any ideas? But maybe we shouldn't laugh at the Mail on Sunday. Maybe they shouldn't be in the Hall of Shame at all. As I said earlier, what we need to end this crisis is for people who supported Brexit to stand up and say, look, some of what I thought was right was wrong, and here's how we're going to fix it. And weirdly, every day that we continue down the wrong path brings us closer to the point where we hold our hands up and we turn back down the right path. It's getting closer. Well, that was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to my guest, Safras Manzor. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks always to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcasts are released every Friday. If you enjoyed this one, why not subscribe and rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice? If you'd like to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and if you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, visit our new website and join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow The New European on Twitter, at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter, at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. And until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.